and welcome to On the Nature of Things, a history podcast about people, literature and nature, hosted by me, Chloe Fairbanks. And me, Mary Hitchman. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from 700 to 1700. That's a thousand years of history, so we should make a start. Today we're looking at magic, how it was perceived, and how magical practitioners use nature as a resource for spells and potions. Before we get into the topic, we've got an extract from the Nine Herbs charm. We like doing readings on the podcast because primary sources are often the closest we can get to knowing what historical people were thinking and feeling. The charm is in Old English, which is an earlier form of the language we speak today. Although it might be much older, the poem was recorded in a 10th century medical manuscript. It contains instructions for making a salve out of herbs for healing wounds, as well as an incantation to say over the wound. A translation by Tom Cook is available on our Twitter, at TheNaturePod. Nu, meron thus nigon wirta, with nigon wulda geflogenum, with nigon atrum, and with nigon unfliegenum, with the reden atra, with the runlanatra, with the huitanatra, with the wedenanatra, with the yolwanatra, with the grenanatra, with the wonanatra, with the wedenanatra, with the brunanatra, with the basawanatra, with worm ya blood, with water ya blood, with thorn ya blood, with thistle ya blood, with ees ya blood, with ator ya blood. If any ator cumma eston fleogum, or the any northan cumma, or the any western over where theoda, Christod over Atla Anyan Kundes. Ich ana what eor inenda, tha the neon nadran neon beheldath. Mot an eela weardonu wirtam a springan, saz to slupan, el selt water, than ich this ator of the yablaw. So magic is this huge nebulous concept and its meaning has evolved throughout history, but it can be broadly defined as a change brought about with the help of supernatural forces using aids such as rituals, spells and talismans, and these aids are often drawn from the natural world. So there's obviously a lot of crossover here with science and religion. The nine herbs charm that we just heard has a medical purpose, i.e. curing a wound, but a magical method. A really important point to make at this stage is that people in 700 to 1300 practicing charms and incantations like the one we just heard would not have seen themselves as performing magic necessarily or being witches. The Old English charms invoke Jesus, the Holy Spirit, various saints and the Christian God as well as pagan deities. So the charm should be understood as part of a really diverse and pluralistic Christian practice that existed in harmony with folk healing traditions. That's so true. I mean, many charms and rituals from this period are intended to prevent harm done by witches. So they fit into a broad definition of magic, but I think you're right, it's important to remember which labels are ours and which are contemporary with the primary material. Mythical and magical figures of the early medieval period often had really strong ties to the natural landscape, using it as a resource for their magic and rituals. One example that might be familiar to you is the Druid. These high-ranking religious leaders crop up in lots of Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and Cornish mythology. A Druidic ritual involved gathering mistletoe from a sacred oak tree on the sixth day of the moon, and mistletoe is harvested using a golden sickle. 
we don't have much documentary or archaeological evidence that points to the existence of this group, so it's best to take these Druid-related stories with a pinch or two of salt. So myths and legends were a hugely important part of the popular imagination. For example, the Welsh poet Taliesin wrote a poem called Caridwin's Prize Song about Caridwin, who is a very cool enchantress figure in Welsh folklore. Caridwin brewed potions to grant gifts of wisdom and can change into various animals. She's presented as being one with and in control of the landscape. This is potentially not the historical insight that you wanted, but I used to work at Lush and they had a bath barn called Caridwin's Cauldron. <laughs> Did it grant you gifts of wisdom? <laughs> no, but my legs were really soft after using it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take what we can get. The mythology doesn't give much of an insight into the sort of natural magic normal people might have been doing in the early medieval period to bring good luck, cure illnesses, or tell the future. And often people weren't writing down their own charms. The Nine Herbs charm is an exception. But, so this is a top tip for historical research, um, the best way to find out what people were actually doing is to look at what they were being told not to do. And a really great place to start with this is penitentials. So these books were issued by church figures and they contain lists of sins and corresponding penances. You might say prayers or fast or even live a monastic life, depending on how bad your sin was. <laughs> so lots of magical practices were interpreted as pagan and so the church cracked down on them at various points. Theodore's Penitential, which is attributed to Archbishop Theodore of Canterbury, was written around 700 and contains a lot of incredibly specific magic-related sins that use a lot of natural resources. For example, burning grains where a man had died in order to promote the health of those still living merited five years of penance, as did using dreams or auguries to predict the future. Auguries? So auguries are a Roman custom of divination and what you do is you look at entrails of animals and the flight pattern of birds to predict whether it was a good day to enter into battle, that sort of thing. In Theodore's Penitential there's a really fine line between what is considered acceptable magical practice and what isn't. You're allowed to use stones and herbs to cure someone possessed by a demon for example, as long as you don't use an incantation. Following this logic, Theodore might not have approved of the Nine Herbs charm, which used both herbs and an incantation. To be fair, it does seem more practical to cover all your bases and use all the tools at your disposal. Practicality is kind of striking, actually. I mean, now we might romanticise ideas about people gathering around cauldrons and working with the natural world to cure themselves and improve their lives, but it just seems like a pretty normal thing to do. Mm-hmm. We wanted to carry on exploring the theme of normal people using nature to help them live their lives, so we spoke to Dr. Tabitha Stanmore from the University of Bristol. She works on the role of magic in medieval and early modern society, and you can find her on her excellent Twitter, at magicnotwitches. I wanted to know who practised magic in early modern England and Wales. That is an excellent question. It's actually very varied. Um, I think we tend to think of magic as being something which was very much associated with witches and therefore was very feminine. We tend to associate it with old women, um, possibly who were misunderstood and being persecuted across Europe during the late medieval and early modern periods. But it was actually much more varied than that. Both men and women practiced. It was across most age brackets as well. I've found magicians who were practicing in their early 20s all the way up until their sort of 80s and 90s. So it was a very broad range in that sense. Magic was practiced across classes as well. We've got examples of very uh, eminent people like Duquesa of Luxembourg, who was the mother-in-law of Edward IV, who was assumed to be practicing magic pretty widely, all the way down to a sort of local peasant being able to perform magic on their cows to protect them from disease, for example. So it's a very, very broad range. 
That's so interesting. Thank you. Something that you've said there that I just kind of want to jump on is the distinction between magic and witches. Could you expand on that for me, please? Yes, absolutely. I do research magic specifically. And whenever I say I research magic, people say, oh, fantastic, witchcraft. And they actually are quite different things during the early modern period, especially. So this definition does not apply, I should say, to the modern period at all. And it doesn't apply to modern witches. But to the early modern mind, at least, a witch was somebody who had made a pact with the devil to cause harm to other people. And even if they hadn't made a pact with the devil, they were still very much motivated by spite and wanted to kill cattle, destroy crops, raise storms, that kind of Whereas there are other types of magic that existed during the period as well. So my research specialism is on practical magic, which is the kind of thing that you would use on an everyday basis to solve everyday problems. So that could be performing a spell to find stolen goods or identify a thief. If somebody goes missing, you might perform a spell or use a conjunction of both prayers and some kind of ritual to be able to identify where that person's gone. Or it could be used to, as I say, heal animals, heal people, inspire love, break a couple up if somebody's quite jealous. (laughs) So it's, it's very varied and there are various different types of magic and different approaches to magic during the early modern period that we don't sort of necessarily recognize all the time. Thank you. I was wondering the people who practice magic how did people see them were there varied responses to them depending on the magic they were doing were they kind of universally loved or reviled what kind of reception did they get so I think everything that you just mentioned there, you know, the love, the reviled, the respect, all of those <laughs> apply at different times. As I say, witches, the general idea of witches was quite scary. You know, they, they are people who are motivated by spite and they might do you harm. So there was definite sort of fear there, resentment, anger attached to that kind of magic. When it came to more practical magic, there was a, a much more mixed response. There was a fair amount of respect, especially if you've got a cunning person who sort of performs services to their, their neighbours, there's going to be a lot of respect because you need these people to help you. You know, if, you're, if your cow is sick or your child is sick, you need them to be on your side. So in that sense, there is an acceptance that this is a necessary part of society, but they are also quite scary people, you know, that they're able to harness supernatural powers that most people can't, and they could use those both in a positive and a negative way. So there's always respect tinged with fear, but I like to think of it as a form of practical coexistence or sort of toleration. People are widely aware that magical practitioners are possibly in the sort of moral grey area and possibly also using unorthodox methods in order to sort of achieve the ends that they're achieving. But they're also something that you, you rely on. So if you think about it a little bit like sex work in that it's a very important function that people are playing in society, but most most people don't necessarily want to admit to using those services and practical magic sort of inhabits that realm I would say. Thank you that's certainly food for thought. <laughs> so you mentioned Jaquetta of Luxembourg who I'm fascinated by because I have a major couple crush on Elizabeth and Edward. <laughs> um, is there because you mentioned practiced across a variety of classes is there a difference in the perception of those practitioners based on you know a class or a gender divide or i know you've mentioned england and wales is it sort of generally broadly uniform across different classes different parts of what we now call the uk or does it vary from you know rural to city or across class lines okay so when it comes to geographical area it's kind of hard to tell although we do have quite a few surviving sources we don't have that many that we can really sort of say 
there is a major regional difference between England and Wales or the North of England and the South of England. There does seem to be some regional variation, but I wouldn't want to mislead your listeners by trying to give any kind of clear uh, definition or difference there. When it comes to class lines, there definitely is a difference. The higher classes tend to use a slightly different type of magic, especially to the lower classes. Your average cow herder, for example, who practices magic is going to be doing quite sort of practical and quite rudimentary spells. So that might be using certain herbs or plants, which are seen to have some kind of magical properties. And you might be combining that with a garbled Latin prayer and using that to a certain end. When you get into the, the higher classes, it tends to be a lot more complex, the kind of magic that they're doing. So they're using the conjunctions of the stars and they're calculating that in order to make sure that their spells work. They're summoning demons, which is an incredibly complex process, which I can't fully explain, but I can try. And they're also using sort of more valuable objects as well. So that can be precious stones, gold, that kind of thing. And it's partly just linked to the fact that you know, that they have more access to these valuable objects so they're able to go into more complex magic and they're also going to have a certain amount of learning a lot of ritual magic spells tend to draw on latin or greek or hebrew which is just not something that most people are going to know <laughs> during the period there's also the the ends that they're using it for and the way that they're seen so uh Jaketra of luxembourg quite a problematic figure it wasn't seen as particularly okay that she was using magic in order to you know sort of go up in the world but she was still of a class that could get away with it so it seems to be or at least my interpretation is that magicians in the higher classes it was widely accepted that it happened and that you could go and call on a magician and that could be from a sort of very high ritual magician who had a university education all the way down to a local cutting man that you might go and get a sort of one-off service from and and that was broadly accepted as an okay thing to do except if you sort of overstep the boundaries too far. So when it comes to the royal family around Edward IV, obviously there are quite a few magic accusations that come through because the Woodvilles are becoming too powerful, essentially. So as I say, I think that basically there was just sort of low-level magic going on in courtly circles. But when it became a problem is when you actually start seeing it in record. I wanted to pick up on something you said there. So you said that your local cunning man or woman might be using magical herbs, whereas your kind of more elite upper class ritual magician might be using gold or precious stones. They're both using the natural world in some way. So how does the natural world come into magical practice in this period? It comes in several different ways. So I think one of the things we wanted to talk in the podcast was about natural magic and what natural magic was. And that's something I've sort of touched on that I haven't really explained fully. So we can broadly define magical phenomena during the medieval and early modern periods into two categories, or at least among intellectuals, these two categories exist. And those are demonic things caused by demons who have almost preternatural abilities and the ability to sort of see into the future and sort of understand in great detail, much more than humans ever will, how the natural world works. So if you call on a demon to perform some kind of magical service for you, then they're going to be able to do things that humans can't. The other category of supernatural is the miraculous performed by God. Those are the two sort of truly supernatural types of magic that exist. Then there's a third category, which is natural magic. And that's basically trying to access the powers that are inherent in nature, which have been placed there probably by God. I think it's sort of broadly agreed, but that's uh, that's where they came from during the modern period, at least. And those are the kind of things that are hidden and can't be explained by sort of normal human activity and human understanding. But it does seem to be a sort of replicable phenomenon each time. So an easy example of this is magnets. There is no conceivable reason why one bit of rock should be able 
could be dragged over to another bit of rock without any intervention, but it works. And so that was seen as a kind of natural magic. And so you can kind of try to harness those inherent properties to your own ends. So that could be, you know, that's that's where stones come in and that's where sort of precious stones in particular. So lapidaries, which are the texts that explain the properties of different types of stones, became very popular in the 12th century onwards in England. And they basically explain the different kinds of stones that exist and why they're useful and what they're useful for. So for example, coral is thought to dissolve other kinds of magic in an area. So you can use it to sort of protect against witchcraft, for example. Rubies are also seen to be quite good for capturing demons inside because they have a connection with the planet Mars as well. So, you know, there's quite sort of strong forces going on there. So you can kind of use these in order to harness these powers. And it's not seen as quite so unorthodox or quite so illicit, potentially, as using angels and demons in your magic because technically you are just employing what's already there and you're sort of noticing what god has already put there and that does apply to herbs as well so the powers aren't coming from you you're kind of getting them from somewhere else yeah exactly i think that's really interesting that i think has definitely changed my perception of how people might have understood the cunning man or woman in the village are there any herbs in particular that you know of having or that were considered to have magical properties Yes, quite a few. So I think the most obvious example is the mandrake. Anybody who's read Harry Potter or watched Harry Potter will know about mandrakes. But the mandrake root does look very similar to a small human. Um, It's got that kind of strange human shape, which honestly, if you pull one out of the ground, is very unsettling. And that was seen to be something that was very deliberately created. So it was, you know, associated with the ability to heal various different illnesses. But by pulling it up out of the ground, you were essentially murdering something. And the revenge that a mandrake would take on you is that it would kill you. These plants were seen as having a very, very powerful role in the natural world, I suppose. So it was very common to, if you wanted to pull up a mandrake root for whatever reason, if you wanted to use it in magic or you wanted to use it in healing, you would tie the stalks to a dog and then ask the dog to run away, thus pulling up the mandrake root, so that if anybody dies, it will be the dog that dies and not the person who actually wants to harvest it, which obviously is very unfair on the dog, um, but just goes to show quite how seriously this was taken. Other herbs, so St John's wort was seen as very powerful, and actually in sort of modern spell casting, it's also used quite a lot today. And that was seen to have many different properties, partly in healing, but also for driving away demons. And it's partly, you know, just because of the name St John's wort, it is actually sort of patronised by St John, you are calling on his support while using this herb. And mugwort as well which was you know very common it basically sort of grew like a weed across england was very good for driving away different types of magic as well so you could hang that over your door and that would stop evil influences from entering your house so yeah there was a magical smorgasbord just kind of lying around the countryside we get a fair amount of this information from people well, two different types of sources either clerical literature which is condemning magic and explaining why these things don't work and why they shouldn't be allowed to continue basically so for the, the examples i just gave they all came from a really interesting text actually written by petrus hispanus in the 13th century who became the future pope john the 21st and he wrote this this text to sort of both give examples of how the natural world could be useful for curing illnesses. Um, he called it sort of the, the poor man's treasury. But he also pointed out some things which shouldn't be touched and, you know, that, that kind of went too far down the sort of superstitious, magical route. And so those kinds of texts, they don't really tell us about sort of who was growing these things or how you might come across them. But you do also have sort of household recipe books, for example, that would give random cures for various different diseases or uh, experiments for how to discover a thief and that kind of thing. I suppose looking at those handbooks or those recipe books, we can tell what was more commonly available 
to most people. But I imagine that it was mostly a sort of on a foraging basis more than an actual sort of cultivating. But, you know, most people would also have some kind of herb garden or kitchen garden. So they might well be choosing to plant certain things in there that could be useful for these purposes. I'd actually love to bounce a question off of that, because as you were talking about the recipe books, I've done some research recently on recipe receipt culture. And something that I found so fascinating is that when you get these recipe books, whether they're printed and people have added their own notes in, or whether it's sort of a manuscript miscellany of family and local recipes, is that you will get how to boil a duck leg in sauce, and then it'll be a spell to cure warts, and then it will be, you know, something medicinal for if you've got flatulence. And so I'd love if you could talk just a little more about that overlap between the domestic use of the natural world and the magical yeah, definitely. So I, I haven't actually looked at recipe books in too much detail myself. So please do jump in with anything you found because this is really, really interesting for me. <laughs> but yeah, I think hmm, to take a modern example, you should think about early modern and medieval recipe books as a bit like Mrs. Beacon's household management. It has various different recipes and, you know, things that you can sort of cook and, and that they're useful. And sometimes it'll say, oh, you know, if you have a chill, then you should definitely, you know, eat this soup. This is really helpful. But also like Mrs. Beacon's, it's got explanations of how to clean various different things. And and generally, sort of what you need to keep a household functioning. You know, bear in mind, the NHS does not exist and will not exist for several hundred years. Trained physicians are expensive. Apothecaries use you know, pretty expensive medicines as well. So most people wouldn't be able to sort of have access to the kind of healthcare that we would expect today, or sort of professional healthcare, I should say. So what they had instead was their family recipes or the recipes from their neighbours that would be passed down and used again and again. So obviously, you're going to write these down in the main household management book. And that will sort of spill over into recipes for cooking and also just useful things for your your day-to-day life. And that will include spells. You know, if somebody does go and steal your spoons, which is incredibly common, weirdly, in, in magic spells of the early modern period, somebody loses a spoon and they desperately want to get this spoon back. So they will do a spell. <laughs> there are various different ways that you can do that spell in order to get your spoon back. So of course you're going to write these down because it's, it's a useful reference for how to deal with everyday problems that you're going to experience in your household. You mentioned healthcare and medicinal uses. Is there, what is the extent of the sort of division between the medicinal and the magical because I know magic obviously is used for medical purposes as well so how nebulous is that divide or that relationship oh it's very nebulous there is no clear dividing line really especially in the late medieval period there are quite a few medical texts so Gilbertus Anglicanus for example wrote what was quite a sort of leading physician he wrote various different um, texts about how to conduct good medicine and that included several spoken charms and that was seen as perfectly legitimate and they were sort of you know copied and reused throughout the early modern period and that was seen as perfectly acceptable but also it definitely was sort of recognized that that is kind of using a kind of supernatural power often a lot of these charms would as i say be linked to christianity or a prayer so there's a charming charm for toothache which basically says st peter sat on a rock it hurt in the name of god remove this toothache or something like that <laughs> because if you sit on a rock for too long it's really uncomfortable so you're kind of you're tapping into the the experience of a saint and using his sort of power and patronage to basically remove the pain that you're feeling is the idea and that becomes less and less orthodox especially as the reformation comes in and it's sort of seen as you know, kind of popish and heretical almost to be using those kinds of charms but for a long time they are seen as a perfectly logical approach to medicine so yeah short answer to your question the lines are very very blurred between sort of magic and medicine again because you're trying to access things in the natural world that will inevitably blur into things that aren't fully understood and therefore could be magic. 
upon this rock I will heal my tooth <laughs> sorry um, I'm fascinated by the whole magic healing matrix going on I think that's really interesting would you say that people were more likely to visit a cunning person for a cure than a doctor or a physician I can't give a statistical answer to that but I think the answer is probably yes in terms of licensed physicians there are a vanishingly small number in England license is only really stretched into town anyway so yeah the, the kinds of people who had an education enough to be a physician would be very expensive and they would not be very common so yeah i think it's much more likely that you'd be visiting either a cunning person or potentially a priest as well priests did tend to dabble in magic partly because they had access to these sort of christian rituals and magical items like communion wafers which were seen to have a sort of fundamental power of themselves which could be harnessed in various different ways so if you didn't have a cunning person available and you wanted to kind of double down then you might go to a priest and ask them to both heal you and also bless you to protect you from various different <laughs> illnesses or misfortunes. I actually have a sort of related question. If you're practicing sort of natural magic, what's the sliding scale of how you get from natural magic that it sounds like from what you've said is by and large a bit more acceptable to the unnatural. I mean, I suppose an extreme example would be summoning a demon. But I noticed when you were talking about the more practical everyday uses that one of them was breaking up a couple if you were a bit jealous. So, so I want, is it a case of sort of morality that determines the naturalness or unnaturalness? Or does it depend on how much of the natural world you're using slash how much of the supernatural is being invoked? So I think it's partly about who you ask. I think I mentioned earlier, there is a, a kind of an intellectual divide between the sort of clerical theologians and everyday people just getting on with their life and using things that work, basically. And most sort of parish priests sit in between those two categories. Um, they are very much kind of of their communities and trying to get on with their everyday lives, but also they have some kind of awareness of the wider theological implications of what's happening. So from a theological kind of intellectual perspective, the dividing line comes in when there is no clear reason why this would be a natural phenomenon. And although God is present in the world and does you know, intervene in people's lives, he doesn't do it so regularly that you can't rule out that if you're blessing a field, say, or breaking a couple up, then it's not actually being done by demons who are masquerading as working via God's will. So that's one of the reasons why cunning folk are seen as quite untrustworthy or sort of possibly problematic, is that you can go to a cunning person and say, my cow is sick, please heal my cow, and they will give the cow a blessing, and then the cow gets better. But that could actually be done by a demon, and God was not involved at all. So when we kind of blend further into could be natural magic, but also it could be you know, that th there isn't a very clear reason why this would be natural magic it becomes problematic because it probably isn't natural magic at all and it's actually demonic on a more sort of popular level with what people were sort of you know getting on with on their everyday lives i think it is much more to do with morality it's about what you're doing and whether it's causing harm which it makes it interesting when we come to things like sort of breaking a couple up because there are various different examples from the medieval period of fears that a woman who was jilted then causes impotence in her ex-lover when he gets married to somebody else good for her yes exactly <laughs> So morality-wise, how how immoral is this? So those kinds of cases don't tend to get reported very often because actually you can imagine sort of a community dealing with the situation and it's not something where you can go, ah, oh, this is demonic and terrible and this woman is evil because there's an awkward community interaction going on there in the first place. So although it definitely is magic, it probably wouldn't have seen, been seen as problematic magic a fair amount of the time. And especially when it comes to things like conception spells, they're very rarely prosecuted either by the church or sort of picked up on by communities 
despite the fact that they very clearly existed because we have sort of records of spells of work uh, for conception. But they don't normally come up with sort of you know, clear examples of somebody being prosecuted for it because, because it practically doesn't do any harm. It's actually kind of what most couples in the medieval period are aiming for. So using magic in that way probably doesn't involve demons and also is performing a positive social function. Since you mentioned natural phenomena, I'm wondering if you could chat a bit about were natural phenomena ever interpreted as magical? And if so, what are your favorite or most interesting examples of that taking place? Short answer, yes. <laughs> there was quite a lot of natural phenomena that were accepted as supernatural or at least kind of having that sort of portentous quality. As I said before, God was seen as being relatively active in the world. So he is going to sort of step in and warn if something really big is going to happen. And it was pretty widely debated, especially in the late medieval period when we're still sort of working out exactly what magic is and what it isn't how far you can take these portents, basically. I mean, it was it was very broadly agreed that if you look up in the sky and you see a big grey cloud, likelihood is it's going to rain. That's not magic. That is using your common sense. But then there are the, the other kinds of portents which were potentially slightly more magical or slightly more sort of God intervening in everyday life. So when stars were seen to affect people, that was seen as potentially magical or potentially sort of abnormal in some way. But there are also other portents that people were sort of interpreting on a day-to-day basis. So one of the ones that was recorded in the 13th century was that if a dog howls in a house an inhabitant would get sick or die no logical explanation for that whatsoever so, you know, if a magpie lands on your roof um, then a visitor is going to come or if you find a key or an iron horseshoe lying on the road and that means that you're going to have good health for the rest of the year and these are seen as portents and they're seen as things arising in the natural world which are you know kind of affecting your everyday life and is uh, causing things that can't possibly be caused by a magpie, which is why we know about them, because various clerical writers from the 13th century onwards were saying, this doesn't work. Stop trusting the magpies. Trusting God. Stop trusting the magpies. Start trusting God is probably my favorite thing you've said so far. (laughs) Based off of that, what is, from anywhere within the period you study, what is your favorite funky natural phenomenon that is, by and large, generally accepted as that's magical, as opposed to it's just a cloud indicating it's going to rain. Is there sort of a standout? This isn't important, but one of my favourite stories from the 13th century is from a this pastoral manual, basically a collection of sermons for priests to use to show their parishioners why certain practices shouldn't be done. And it's a story of a woman who decided that she wanted her bees to be more productive So she had various different beehives. And the best way to get them to produce more honey, she thought, was to use a communion wafer and put it in the hive. So at communion, she took the communion bread, hid it under her tongue, took it home, put it in her beehive uh, with the hope that that would bless the bees and they would become much more productive. Instead, the bees built a shrine around the bread because they recognised it was a holy item and therefore deserved worship and recognition. She then had to run to her local priest and apologise and confess what she had done because God was just intervening and saying this is not what you should be using my bread for or my body for rather. <laughs> I think it's just it's just lovely and you can kind of see both kind of the logic of where she was coming from and you know what, what was important to her it's not so much about her eternal soul it's about whether or not she gets nice honey but also the kind of the, the role that God was seen to play from a kind of theological perspective in people's lives. Save the beast. Gives a whole new meaning to bead. The venerable. <laughs> and probably make them saints I don't know. Jumping off of that 
into, I think you've touched on it a little bit, but if you could go a little more into things like that natural magic and how it's used both on the larger scale, potentially higher up the social ladder way, but also it sounds like natural magic is very much a practical part of everyday and particularly local regional existence. So if you could just speak a little bit more about natural magic and the sort of most common uses of and understandings of that. I suppose it's important to point out that natural magic is something which was mostly thought of in quite intellectual spheres. As I say, on an everyday basis, people aren't really thinking too deeply about how magic works. It's just a useful thing. And, you know, if if it worked for your neighbour, you're going to try it yourself. And then if it works for you, then you're going to pass it on. In more intellectual spheres, there's definitely sort of natural magic is thought about a lot more and the the theory behind it is explored. And as a result of that, I suppose we actually start spreading into things like alchemy, for example. So, you know, kind of turning base metals into gold. There's also a lot more to alchemy than just that. It's also about sort of almost purifying the soul and being able to cleanse and distill the human spirit into something which is almost divine. And that would seem to be kind of achievable by using the physical properties of things as well as kind of cleansing the human body and kind of using those in conjunction to create something which was both spiritually superior I suppose and also kind of taking things to their purest element i.e gold to create something which is kind of worthy of godliness I suppose. The people who kind of have the, the time and resources to think about natural magic and how it works would be using it for various different purposes some of which were as I say kind of the ability to turn base metals into gold. And as I said, that, that was a very spiritual process in itself. And it was something which required a lot of sort of devotion. But it also definitely had that kind of pragmatic element of if you can create gold, then that's really useful. And you get smaller scale versions of that, like people trying to use the fundamental properties of silver in order to create more silver, which often just involved debasing coins in order to extract as much silver as possible. <laughs> so not exactly the most useful thing, but that was sometimes investigated as magic because it was kind of trying to create more of something from a little amount of it but it had that kind of very strong natural element as well there were also occasional uses of what was thought to be natural magic in order to create illusions so again if you kind of harness the stellar rays and the conductive planets in a particular order and you get the right time of day so normally dusk when the light isn't particularly good and you can come see things in the corner of your eye that could be a really good time to if you're in the right location as well do something like create an illusion of an enormous castle in the middle of a wood i suppose the important thing about natural magic is that it is only meant to be creating things which are possible so it's not going into that supernatural realm of things which you know just aren't possible without intervention from extremely powerful beings so that's why you know you can't create a an actual castle out of thin air you can only create an illusion of a castle out of thin air because you're harnessing invisible powers in order to make something look visible so yeah i mean natural magic could be used very much to entertain as well as to make money as well as to potentially harness your own internal powers so that could be using the conjunction of the stars to summon an angel angels are associated with certain planets and stars so if the the planets are in the right alignment then you might be able to summon a particular angel and then you can ask them for help with improving your Latin, for example, is what one spell does. Yeah, clever that. Hypothetically, if one were to wish to summon an angel, how would you go about it? 
<laughs> Unfortunately, it's more trouble than it's worth. I don't know whether you're familiar with Terry Pratchett at all, but there is a lovely, I think it's in The Colour of Magic, The Wizard Rincewind basically talks about how completely useless being a wizard is because by the time you've actually learned the complexity of the spell to summon a woman into your bedchamber, you no longer remember what you wanted to do with her by the time you got there. And <laughs> it's very similar when it comes to medieval and early modern magic, or at least ritual magic. The spells are very complex. You have to fast for sort of two weeks beforehand. You have to pray every day. You have to sort of spiritually, ritually cleanse yourself to make yourself the kind of purest possible being you can possibly be, as well as make sure that you've got the stars in the right alignment and that you're in the right location so that the stars are in the right alignment. And then you need to you know, draw your magic circle. You need various rituals, which, as I say, kind of normally involve various different languages. And after all of that, if nothing goes wrong, then an angel might appear. And normally they speak in middles. So you're not entirely sure what they're getting at after all that anyway. I think if I'd fasted for two weeks, an angel might appear as well. So... Uh... <laughs> Also true. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about weather magic. How does that work? And also, could you give us a few fun examples, please? Yes, absolutely. So weather magic is, again, something very practical, something that people needed on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as being called in for sort of special occasions. So blessing the fields sometimes coincided with asking for rains to come at the right time, for example. I mean, the two main types of weather magic that you see is either trying to dispel a storm or bring about a storm. Unsurprisingly, bad people tend to be the ones who want to bring about storms. So that's mostly something that's associated with witchcraft. And ending storms is something which is associated with cunning folk or church. So ringing church bells to stop a storm, for example, like especially if it's a really, really powerful storm and you think that maybe demons are abroad and flying around and causing this wind, you might want to ring your church bells <laughs> um, to drive that away. But then the the kind of the raising storms is something which was associated, as I say, with witchcraft and other nefarious activities. So again, the most famous example of that is probably the storm that hit the ship of James VI of Scotland as he was returning from Denmark with his new wife. I mean, they arrived safely in Scotland, so it wasn't all bad. But the storm was apparently so bad that, you know, everybody did think that they were going to lose their lives and you know, the ships were going to sink. And then eventually when they arrive in Scotland, a big witch hunt ensues because it was pretty clear that this storm was being caused by some kind of demonic intervention. It can't just be sort of a normal storm. When the witches were rounded up and interrogated, it was found that the witches had indeed you know, caused the storm because they really, really hated James VI because he was God's representative on Earth and therefore need to be taken out. But the way that they caused this storm is very grisly, so I apologise. The witches dug up a body of a man, dismembered it, attached some of those body parts to a baptised cat, put it in a sack and threw it in the sea. I think part of the theory behind it is essentially the kind of the, the profanity of baptising a cat. You know, animals don't have immortal souls in this paradigm. You actually get a fair number of baptised animals being used in demonic magic anyway. Then kind of throwing it into the sea, the seas are going to boil because they want to escape the profanity that's been thrown into them essentially. Another example which is from a couple of hundred years beforehand, so in the early 15th century, Henry IV of England was having some serious trouble with Wales. The Welsh king slash prince slash rebel, depending on who you ask during the period, Owen Glendower, was fomenting a rebellion in Wales and trying to sort of reclaim Wales from the English, and he was surprisingly successful at it. So Thomas Walsingham, who was one of the major chroniclers of the 15th century, explained Owen Glendower's success by saying that he actually got the help of some local minorite friars to perform a spell in order to 
sort of forces fog to descend to completely disorient the English army so that the Welsh could get away whenever they've sort of met in battle and also to bring in a lot of rain. You can imagine trying to sort of fight a, a war in, in the Welsh mountains, especially when there's torrential rain. <laughs> it's not going to go particularly well. So the English side were just like, this, this, is, this is magic, it has to be. And several minor right riots were actually executed as a result of partly just being on Owen's side, but also potentially for having actually caused this magic in the first place. Chloe, you probably are familiar with how Owen Glendower is portrayed in some Shakespearean literature. You know, he's seen as a great sorcerer, even up until the 17th century. I was just thinking of that marvellous moment in Henry IV Part 1, where Owen Glendower is like, you know, the heavens roared at my birth, there were comets, there were portents, I am, you know, the great ruler. And Hotspur's like, sounds to me like the earth farted you out, and just sort of completely deflated it, which sounds like a very English thing to, oh, Wales is winning must be magic. So much. And then, and then just disabling all of that, as you say, by kind of just making a joke out of it. It's like, this is definitely evil. These people are evil because they're using magic, but also the magic is bunk. And it's just, it's, it's a glorious kind of cycle that's going on there. Question. How prevalent are potions? Because I'm thinking of that as something that could be natural magic. Yeah, so potions are interesting. I have a kind of love-hate relationship with potions because I can never work out whether they're magical or not. Because, you know, a lot of them do just, at least to the early modern mind, have very obvious natural properties which you would want to harness. I mean, if you think of things like theriac, kind of the, the universal cure for pretty much any disease during the late medieval period, it's a combination of treacle, about 60 or 70 different herbs, and then things like powdered unicorn horn because obviously unicorns are associated with removing poison. So of course you're going to put that in your panacea healing stuff. Unicorns are obviously magical beasts, and I should probably clarify that when I say powdered unicorn horn, we're probably talking about powdered narwhal horn, especially when they kind of get shipped in from some exotic place. So you never actually see the unicorn body, you only ever see the unicorn's horn. So yeah, the unicorn is a semi-magical creature, but the properties are seen as very natural and it's very obvious to put these into things. So when it comes to potions, you've got the same sort of thing going on where you're just harnessing the power that's already in nature. There are quite a few examples of your average Joe healer being prosecuted for using magic because the theory behind the things they're putting in the potions isn't orthodox. So if you kind of think about humoral theory, so you've got the kind of the four humours in the body and you've got certain plants which are associated with some of the humours or the, or the kind of the different heats in the body. So if somebody is giving out a potion which doesn't actually cohere to humoral theory, then either they're just bad doctors or they are using some kind of magic. So that's one way that potions become sort of magical is because they just don't cohere to sort of current medical practice. The other way that potions can potentially be magical is when they are tailored more towards a particular person and especially when they start using blood. So if you want to hear a really gross example of a love potion, mixing period blood into an intended lover's food or into their drink is a way of basically inspiring some sort of lust in that yeah i'm loving your face chloe right now it's it's glorious <laughs> you can understand why that kind of thing was actually clamped down on can't you i mean sort of, it's one thing to be given a love potion in order to fall in love with somebody that you are particularly in love with it's completely enough why there's period blood involved in it as well i mean that's just not that's not cricket also, I'm just going to go for this. Another spell along similar lines involves inserting <laughs> a fish up a woman's vagina, allowing it to die there and then feeding it to your intended husband in order to encourage them to fall in love with you. Finding Nemo. <laughs> Sorry. That was glorious. Oh, very good. Thank you so much.
from Tabitha's insights, something that's occurred to me is how much the stereotypical witch, you know, hooked nose, broomstick, pals with Satan, general life ruiner. (laughs) But like how much that differs from the cunning folk practicing magic. I mean, something that Diane Perkis has talked about is how the scene with the witches around the cauldron in Macbeth, that's depicted for us now as, ooh, spooky, doing dark magic. But at the time, like, that's how you cooked stew and things. So it does in many ways just look on stage like an extract from everyday life. Yeah, that's really interesting. I did actually want to talk a little bit about how this stereotype was created. So we know now that James I was really, really anxious about witches. And in 1597, he produced a work on dark magic and witch hunting called Demonology. Um, James identified what he saw as unlawful charms, um, which used herbs, and um, they involved summoning spirits and also the casting of magical circles. Uh, It wasn't just James who was concerned, though. There was a wider context for fearing witches, and a lot of this anxiety played out in connection with the natural landscape. For example, in Scotland, around the time that James was writing Demonology, many people believed that the devil was spreading disease, killing farm animals, causing storms, and generally wreaking havoc, using the natural world as his primary agent of chaos, almost. Yeah, and I mean, witches were typically seen as agents of the devil, doing his evil bidding on earth, and as a result, there were a series of witch hunts in Scotland in the late 16th century that continued well into the mid-17th century. Those executed were, surprise, surprise, predominantly female, and may have been cunning folk, or local healers, or just people caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, victims of a general atmosphere of panic, and scapegoats for the crop failures in volatile weather. I should mention here that these crop failures and other environmental disasters are part of what historians now call the Little Ice Age. Rather than blaming the land itself, or considering that their control over it had somehow been compromised, people were quick to turn on one another in response. King James's writings about witches captured the imagination of Shakespeare, who used James's descriptions of dark magical practices as a source for his weird sisters in Macbeth. Here's an excerpt from the play where the witches are making a potion from some unfortunate animals. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad, that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one sweltered venom sleeping got. Boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fillet of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. We have reached the end of the episode. You're released from the spell and free to go. But do come back next week when we'll be talking about bodies of water, bodies in water and watery bodies. You can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't fit into the episode and give you updates on what's to come. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, tell your friends and subscribe. That way you will never miss an episode. Until next time. This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Tom Cook and Elena Spinelli, for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project.